Man, I am really excited about, um, about this little series. And let me tell you, we got a lot of questions, which really makes me happy. Um, so we have been, for this last month, encouraging you to submit your questions either online or through the slips that we would have put in the, in the bulletin. And it's called You Asked For It. So it's, it's questions that you might have about anything, really. And then we will, try to, we will try to do our best to biblically support and answer for you. And we only have two weeks before our summer series starts on family worship, and that's going to be on the armor of God. And I am really excited about that, going through the armor of God for seven weeks. The kids will be in here. We're going to do a lot of interactive stuff. It's always a really beautiful time for us as a church family over the summertime, and you learn a lot too. Um, But we're going to just take two weeks and, and, and do a couple questions, and then we'll probably extend this, and it'll be kind of like a great filler for us for a while, I think, because we've got so many questions. But that being said, we, we got, oh, a pretty good portion of questions that I wanted to address first. So what I did was I took all these questions, and what all these questions had to do with was how the church responds to the culture that we are currently living in. Well, Eric, what are we going to do about these kind of people who are attending our church? Or what are we going to do about people out there that are living such a way and such and such this? I don't even know if that's the right word. I'm, I'm, I'm channeling my Randall Anderson. He would make up words on the fly. I have a whole list of them. Here are some of Randall's phrases. So-and-so else's house. <laughs> ever how much. Ever how often that done came. <laughs> ever who. Those are some channeling by Randall Anderson. So I felt like now would be a great time for me to share my heart with you about who we are as Virginia Hills Church and how we fit into this culture, and what our responsibility is. And I'm not saying this is what you have to be. I'm saying this is my heart, and about how I feel or interact with people who aren't what I think they ought to be. And so the, the topic of today's sermon is going to be how should the church respond to today's culture. And that's as specific as I'm going to get because a lot of the questions were, were, were very specific. Now, I will say that it was probably only 15% of the questions that we got in had to do with, with cultural things happening. Like, what are we going to do about this? And how come we're not saying more about this? And how come we're allowing this and all of this? So, so, so my attempt today is, is not to is not to prove a point and it's not to it's not to biblically biblically defend a particular position my point today is to share my heart about where all of this i think needs to go and what the conversation needs to be like so this is not a new theme jesus addressed this in the gospels and the writers of the epistles in all the letters to the churches in the new testament you see them addressing how the, the, the body of believers that they were writing to was supposed to interact with the culture that they were in at that time. And biblical Christians are in a predicament because we live in this world. 
And so we have a choice to make, like how do we fit in this world and what do we do with all of this? When we come in contact with the world, this culture, on a daily basis, and yet we're supposed to maintain and retain our distinctive Christian character as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And we're supposed to live in such a way that positively affects the culture that we live in. So that they would see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Wow. That's a tall order, right? It's a, it's a lot easier just to condemn everybody that doesn't live the way that we think they ought to live. But I think we're supposed to be engaging them and sharing and living among. So anyway, 1 Peter chapter 2. I don't want to get too far. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm gonna, it's, I got five or six verses up here, and we're going we're gonna to read them carefully, but we're not going to spend too much time because we have so much material to cover today. But, but we are a chosen generation. This is Peter writing to Jews, by the way. These are Christian Jews, and Peter is setting some things straight here. And you'll notice the word Gentile used, that was non-Jews. And so what he was telling them was, was that at this time, at this time when this was written, you know, the church was just starting off, and the Gentiles were just starting to get the gospel prior to, the only way you could have a meaningful relationship with the Lord was to become a Jew. Right? This is, this, is before, this is before Paul was evangelizing widespread and, and converting lots of Gentiles. So this is kind of where this is in time, if you will. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I love what the King James says here. A peculiar people. Boy, if that's not descriptive of who we are. That you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. So he's saying, this is who you are. You've been shown the light. You've been pulled out of darkness. You have mercy now. So this is who he's addressing. And then verse 11 says this, Dearly beloved, I beseech you, I beg you as, and listen what he calls them in this world, strangers and pilgrims. As strangers and pilgrims in the world that you're living in, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And then he says in verse 12, he says, having your conversation. I love this word so much because it's not about what you're saying. The word conversation literally means your conduct. So how you are living, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, a different culture, that whereas they, whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, like they may want to say bad stuff about you. They may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. It's an odd phrase, day of visitation. It's a, it's a throwback to Old Testament times. And the day of visitation, the Jews would have understood that to mean that's when God comes down and sets things straight. That's what he's talking about. That's when God comes down and everybody gives an accounting of themselves. And what he's saying here is you should live in such a way that even the Gentiles cannot only say nothing bad about you, but that they will glorify God because of the good works that you're doing 
And that will prepare their heart so that when the day of accounting comes, they can stand before God and be glad and glorify him. And I love how he wraps up this passage in verse 17. He says, honor all men. That word honor means to affix value. Like honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Isn't that a beautiful passage? That's not a bad model for life right there. Just treat everybody well. Love your brothers and sisters. Fear God and honor the king. So he, he kind of closes that passage out with just some really good directives there for us. So here's the conundrum. We're called out of this world. And then we're called to be transformed by the renewing of our mind in Romans chapter 1 and 2. Chapter 12, one, verses 1 and 2. For the purpose of going into the world from which we were called to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. In 1951, there was a book written called Christianity and Culture. And the author said there were five different approaches to the attitude that the church should have in relationship to the culture. And as I've been, I'm not a fan, by the way. But as, as I read through his material, and then as I began to create what we're going to talk about this morning, I narrowed it down to three different attitudes, if you will, or three views that I think we as a church could have. And the first two, I think, so, so, so let me give you bookends here. So, so the first bookend would be the church of the world. So in other words, Christ, we're, we're Christians in name only. Like we are, there's nothing distinctive about us that we are so watered down, if you will, that there's no real effect that Jesus is happening, is having on our lives. There's no real difference. People aren't able to see our good works and glorify God. People don't notice any difference. We are a church of the world. There's nothing recognizable about us that would be godly or transformative or even worth considering because there's nothing different about your marriage than their marriage. There's nothing different about their kids and your kids. There's nothing different about your goals financially and their goals financially because there is no difference. We become a Christian culture that is not distinctively Christian anymore. A church that has adapted the value system of this world and is no longer shining a light and no longer has any savor to its saltiness. So that's one bookend right there, right? A church of the world. Then you have another bookend over here and then all these extremes in between and that is the church against the world. And we have an us versus them mentality. We are adversarial. We will stay in our cocoon and we will hide here until the Lord comes. And while we're in here, we're gonna preach about all them out there so that we feel better about all of them in here. And we're going to create a sense of holiness, not because we're like Jesus, but because we're not like them. They are the enemy. And then you have all these degrees in between the two bookends, a church of the world and a church against the world. Let me propose this to you. I think that what 
What I'm reading in scripture is more of this, and that is a church that is in the world, but not of the world. And that sounds really cool, but that's where all the arguments come. That's where all the disagreements come. That's why we're having this conversation. Being in the world, here's the thing, being in the world means that we get to enjoy the things of the world. We get to enjoy the people and music and humor and this creation and activities and things. We get, to, we get to have stuff. We get to enjoy the things of this world. That's what being in the world is all about. But we are not to subscribe to the value system that the world has or the priorities that the world has. We are to keep God the main focus of our life because pleasure is not the main calling on the life of a believer. Praising and serving God is the main calling of the life of the believer. Billy Graham said it this way. He said, Christians are like the Gulf Stream, which is in the ocean yet not a part of it. This mysterious current defies the mighty Atlantic, ignores its tides, and flows steadily upon its course. Its color is different, being more blue. Its temperature is different, being warmer. Its direction is different. It goes south to north. It's in the ocean, but it's not a part of it. That's kind of a picture of what it's like. We're ambassadors. We are in this world, but we don't subscribe to the value system that this world has. And while we're living in this world, we are called to reach the world that we're in. And so then the question becomes how to, how to effectively do that. And that's where this argument comes from. Like, like how do I interact with those in this world that have a different value system, that see things differently? So let me just share with you my heart. And I kind of feel like this is more of a family chat in a good way. No one's in trouble. Just so that you understand what page I'm on. I'm not saying you have to be on the same page as me. But just so you can read, read my page and see where I'm coming from. And I also want to say this, that this is where I live. This is where my brain is. This is where my heart is. But there's more to this discussion than what I'm going to share with you today. What I'm trying to do is kind of lay a foundation of where this conversation needs to begin. That's what I'm saying. So let me give you four thoughts that I had. I want us to be known for what we are for more than what we are against. It's easy to be against a lot of stuff, and it's easy to define what we're against, we can make a list very quickly. It's a lot more difficult to make lists of things that we are for. I am for strong marriages. I am for freedom from addiction. I'm for helping the hurting and loving my neighbor and lifting the fallen and feeding the hungry and housing the homeless and helping the needy and Loving the unlovely. That's what I'm for. And the list goes on and on. And every time you have a conversation, somebody will come back and say something like this. Well, what about the abortionists? What about the adulterers? What about the homosexuals? 
What about the thieves? What about the drunks? What about the liars? What about the child abusers? Hey, I'm against anything God is against. But what about the arrogant? What about hypocrites? What about the hateful? What about the judgmental? We're okay with those? It's easy to classify a group of people and say, they're against God, God's judgment is on them, and therefore we need to treat them this way. It's amazing how that attitude is always directed elsewhere and not about the crap that we all deal with ourselves. Let me just say this. When you are for something, everyone will know what you are against. Living like this, when you are actively doing something to make people's lives better, when you are helping your community, when you are living out the kingdom of God in the world that you're living in, that is compelling. Not because we're boycotting companies and banning movies. You're free to do that. I'm just saying that's not where I'm coming from. It's not compelling because we're boycotting and banning. Our walk of faith is compelling because it's the starting point of a brand new picture of what this world could look like if it were redeemed. Romans chapter 12 verse 21 says this, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. I want to be known, I want us to be known more for what we are for than for what we are against. I want them to see the goodness that we bring to this community. Now, if you're already justifying your position, you're missing my point. If you're sitting there going, yeah, but, my dad used to say, yeah, but live in the forest. Dad humor, okay? If you're sitting there saying, yeah, but you're missing my point. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm trying to change your emphasis. I'm trying to get you to be more like Jesus as I see him in the New Testament. My second thought is this. I want us to focus on who we need to be more than what others are not. Now, please get this. I'm saying more, okay? I'm not saying only. I'm not saying you never focus on what other people need to become. I'm just saying I think we should focus more on who we need to become, what we need to be than we are about what other people are not. There's so much going on in our own lives that we need to work on. And when all we do is spend our time focusing on what other people are not, we're not making any progress in our relationship with the Lord then. And listen very carefully, deeply embedded in a countercultural ideology or a countercultural stance is the message that you non Christians 
and not us Christians are full of worldly culture. You non-Christians are so worldly. No, let me. We are so worldly. We all got stuff. You pick out certain sins of the world, but the truth is that too many Christians watch the same stuff, visit the same websites, are just as greedy and dishonest on their taxes. Of course, that excludes everybody in this room. I'm talking about the 11 o'clock crowd. (laughs) Not you at all. Does that make you feel better? But what this us versus them creates is this dichotomy where you need saving and we are the ones that have what you need. Implying that we, the church, are worldly less or holier somehow because of what we have been given and the relationship that we enjoy. But the truth of the matter is we all need Jesus. We found him. No, he found us. And we enjoy a beautiful relationship with him and a life that's been redeemed. And we have the opportunity with his help to live as a citizen of this new kingdom. And our heart and our passion should be to introduce this to other people. Not create an us versus them mentality. We need to work on our light so it will shine brighter. We need to work on our saltiness so it will affect this world in a better way. And I love, I love this definition of evangelism. It's one beggar telling another beggar where he got the bread. It's not I have the bread and you don't. Let me show you where the bread is. Another thought that I had, I want us to love people the way we've been loved by God. I want us to love people the way that we have been loved by God. Listen, God loved you before you were even lovable, which is pretty much right now. Because we still got a lot of stuff we're working on, right? God loved you before he was even ever a thought in your brain. God loved you when he knew you were going to screw up. God loved you when when he knew that you were going to do those things which would grieve his heart. Listen, I know, I know they're not acting right. I know they're not living right. Shoot, most Christians aren't living right. I wrote this down. Most Christians don't Christian the way I think they ought to Christian. That's just me being honest. Most Christians don't Christian like I think they ought to Christian. How well, just think about it. How well does God love us? He literally put himself in our shoes. His his love cost him something. Do you see the mental, there's there's a mental shift here. When we begin to love 
the people who make up our culture. And we see our culture as people. It changes our perspective. What is it costing you to love them well? What is it costing you in time and expenses to love well? I want us to love people the way we have been loved by God. The woman taken in adultery, thrown down at Jesus' feet. She was caught in the very act. It always bothers me that the man was not there. She was caught in the act, and the religious people bring him. Boy, they got a case. They caught her doing it. Like they were right in the middle of it. They bring, I shouldn't have gone there, but they bring her like straight from the bed, barely putting clothes on her, throw it down. We got two weeks till, till family worship. Throw her right in front of Jesus. And does anybody know what Jesus told her? Neither do I condemn you. But then he told her to go sin no more. So it's not like he's letting her off scot-free, like you can just live however you want to. But there was forgiveness, there was love, and then a change of behavior. Here's what, here's what so many Christians want. They want people to believe and then behave, and then we'll let you belong to our club. But you got to believe first, and then you got to get your life straightened out, and then you get to be my friend. Oh, okay, that's how Jesus did it, right? No. Jesus called his disciples to him. They belonged in his club. And then their lives were transformed. And then my last thought here. I want us to see this culture as our mission field. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 17, verses 15 through 18, he says, I pray not, this is his prayer for his disciples and for us. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. As I have sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. That's redemption. Like I, I, I'm leaving them here. And the generations that follow, if you read the previous verses, he, he, actually, he actually mentions us in his prayer. Not only these disciples, but the ones who will believe from the words that they say. That's us. We're in this prayer. And his prayer is not that we would be taken out of this world, not that we would get into a cocoon but that this world would be affected by the lives that we're living, that it would be redeemed. Our culture is people, and I am for people because Jesus was for people. Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. He was accused of being a friend of publicans and sinners because he would go into their house and eat with them, which was absolutely forbidden. Nearly everyone he associated with was an outcast from society and Jewish culture. But his relationship with them, please understand this, and this is, and if you're hairlipped right now, I truly am sorry. I don't think that's most of us. But I just, just to say this to make you happy, I believe that his relationship with them was not purely social. It was redemptive. So he was building relationships with them because he knew where he needed to take them. 
And if we, if we see this world, this, this culture that we live in, if we see it as a mission field, it changes how we view the relationships that we have. Russell Moore said this, he said, we must see even our most passionate critic, not as an argument to be vaporized, but a neighbor to be evangelized. So I know there's more layers to this argument. And I believe that we need to be active in our culture to affect change. I think you ought to vote. I think you ought to sign petitions. I think some of you ought to run for public office. I think you should give. I think you should do all of that. That's not what I'm saying. But I think you should be Jesus too. Jesus shook the world and started a movement with 11 men. And then those 11 men, the Bible says, turned the world upside down. And they didn't do it politically. They didn't do it with hate speech. They didn't do it condemning the culture. Absolutely the opposite. Every single church that was started in every single town thrived and was successful in the midst of the culture that was there. Not by changing the culture that was there. The culture was changed because the lives that were redeemed but can I say what I just said 30 seconds ago? Vote, run for office, petition, give, do all of that too. Just don't forget that we're here to be Jesus. The world, I think, is fully aware of its emptiness and its inability to fulfill the dreams that are deeply inside of us. And this culture is inadequate to meet the needs of the human heart. And this is beautiful soil for us to plant the gospel of Christ and to live out what that needs to look like. And God has seen fit to entrust that work to us. And I believe this, if the culture is going to be changed, if the culture is going to be affected, it's going to be through the witness of the church in the world, but not of the world. I hope you have some idea of where my heart is. And this is who I think that we need to be. So the questions that we got in, what are we going to do about these kind of people who are coming to church? Or who we, how are we going to react to this culture that we live in and, and all of this stuff that's going on? Yeah, I, it's the world. I don't expect them to act like Jesus. I get it, but I don't, I don't downplay that either. It concerns me for my kids and my grandkids. It really does. I just know that my heart and where I'm needing to approach this is on a personal level and seeing them as my, my mission field. Because what's amazing to me is is when it happens to your kid or your nephew. And all of a sudden, that culture that you're against is your family. 
you want someone to love them well to Jesus. That's why we're here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for having all the answers. Thank you for treating us individually and and speaking through us. And I pray, God, that you would allow us to become who you see us being in this world. And thank you for trusting us with the gospel and help us to use it well to redeem the world that we live in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.